So I wanted to talk a little bit about the Christian's battle against sin. And I asked Josh to read this verse from Hebrews. Um, it was kind of the inspirational verse for kind of what I'm talking about, even though I'm probably not going to spend very much time in this verse at all. But the reason why I think it's important, um, I just want to bring out this concept that is in verse um, 4. It's always kind of been an interesting verse to me. In your struggle in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And that's, I, I've been told that my interpretation is wrong in the past, but I still hold it, that <laughs> this idea of resisting until the shedding of blood, to me, it's almost an encouragement. It's almost a, um, it's kind of goading you on. You still have something to give in your battle against sin. And really, that's what I want to talk to you today. How does the Christian resist um, sin to the point of shedding blood? Now, the, the chapter we're going to be mostly spending our time in is in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, um, beginning in verse 2. Uh, the reason why I'm picking this is because we have very similar concepts. It's kind of interesting. I'm going to draw some more parallels, but you'll see... There's this idea of sanctification. There's this idea of resisting sin. There's this idea of discipline and this idea of discipline befitting children, sons, and daughters of God. So begin with me if you want uh, chapter, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. It reads, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall see, be, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness you know that he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin no one who abides in him keeps on sinning no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is of God nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is a message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Um, I like this verse um, for several reasons. Um, I think one of the big reasons is I kind of identify with John as a writer, um, but I think he kind of puts this in sort of a logical progression, or it's a progression that I'm able to understand. And I want to talk to you a little bit about it. It's interesting to me that it starts off with this idea that you are children of God because you are purified, because you are sanctified, because you've been made holy. That has transformed you into children of God. So it's this concept that formerly you were not children of God, formerly you were not sanctified, you were not pure, you were not holy, and now you are pure, you are sanctified, 
and you are now holy. So there's this transformational aspect of becoming a child of God. And as a result of becoming a child of God, there's this expectation that the Christian does not sin anymore. I think that's something that we struggle with and it's something I want to talk about a little bit more today. Um, And it's interesting to me because that kind of expectation, um, this is a very high, this is a very lofty expectation that the Christian should never sin ever again. So how do we understand that? Especially when we start looking at, you know, where we were, what we, what we came from. Uh, there's very little expectation, um, perhaps on our part or perhaps on God's part, for how the sinner behaves, right? God, and by that I mean the sinner is going to behave how the sinner behaves until they come to know Christ. So we don't really like, that's um, oh, right, that like distracted me, kind of broke my train of thought. So we don't really, you know, if you're, if you're asking me, a Christian, how a person in the world is going to behave, my general expectation is that they're going to behave in a manner that's not consistent with the word of God, with the will of God, with the things of God. Um, the sinner, he's not really battling against sin. He's not really battling against temptation. He's not really striving to become anything better than what he already is. Um, and, you know, I, there's plenty of examples of, of individual sinners um, overcoming some trial. I think about, um, you know, someone who used to be an alcoholic who was struggling with addiction, who was abusive and was hurting his family, was hurting his friends. Um, he goes to this 12-step program it comes out on the other end, kind of this transformed man who's no longer an alcoholic. But, I mean, has he really changed his soul? Has that change for him been efficacious? Has it done anything for him? Because that same man who is no longer an alcoholic is still going to be struggling, or not rather struggling, he's still going to be living in sin. You know, he could still be angry, he could still be a liar, he could still be a cheater, he could still be angry. Um, he could still be, you know, a, you know, sexually immoral, uh, you know, cheater. The, the thing is, is just because one is, you know, somehow overcoming some spe- specific aspect of evil, that they're not being transformed, really. They're not coming through that, that transformation, a new man, in the same way that a Christian would come through a new man. And by that, I mean, when the Christian battles temptation it's just that it's a war against satan it's a war against evil it's a war against demons and powers that's being aided by jesus christ of course um and that's a completely different struggle that's a completely different battle than one who's battling against you know some kind of vice in their life who wants to somehow generically and generally be a better individual it's the christian who's battling against powers who's battling against evil who's battling against the devil and Satan and the powers of death and evil in this world, right? And this really begins, this really transformational aspect begins at baptism when the Christian who was impure, who was a liar, a cheater, a drunkard, um, filled with temptation and vice and sin and addiction and you know sickness, sadness, sorrow, misery, they're transformed by becoming to know Jesus Christ. In, in verse 2, it says, We are now God's children. We are purifying ourselves in him as he is pure. So the Christian, who was all of these things, a liar and a sinner, he is now a child of God. 
well, does that mean that the Christian is no longer struggling with addiction and lying and cheating and anger and, you know, all of these vices? Um, well, it's hard to say, isn't it? Um, I think in this verse, it indicates that there's kind of this almost this expectation that after we've been transformed, the transformation is done. You know, it's, you go in the water, you come up a new man, and all that stuff is behind you. Um, but I think in a practical sense, we, um, we understand that it's a lot more um, difficult. And the reason why I think it's a lot more difficult is because Satan now has skin in the game. He's trying to get you back. You are no longer his possession. You've been ransomed. You've been bought back from him by God. And Satan, he's not happy about that. He wants you to be his possession. He wants to take you back. He's going to tempt you even more. So there's things that you were struggling with before you became a Christian, all these vices and things in your life that you wanted to change, that you wanted to get rid of, that you wanted to put behind you. You're not able to put behind you because of Jesus Christ, but Satan's going to come at you even harder to put those burdens right back on you. In fact, he's not going to just put the burdens back on you. He's going to try to make them worse. He's going to make them heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. And it's going to be hard. That's really... I mean, any and that's anyone who has any experience as a Christian can tell you that. The farther and farther you move away from Satan, the farther you move away from his power and his grasp, the harder the struggle is going to be because he wants you to be his possession like you once were before you put off evil, before you began to purify yourself. So really, then, why am I standing up here indicating to you that there is some kind of relief why why would it even indicate to you that it's even possible for a christian to put that all behind them to sin no longer and to become fully pure and fully holy as god wants for us to be fully pure and fully holy well this my my i guess point to you today the point that i want to prove to you is that the christian does not find relief the christian does not find rest the Christian does not get to put away all of that baggage until the end, until all of that is done away with completely and done away with totally. Um, in the previous chapter, in 1 John chapter 2, and verse 17, this is kind of an interesting passage to prove this point, or to add, add on to this point, that the world is passing away with all of its desires, and whoever does the will of the Lord, or the will of God, abides forever. I don't like this word desires as much as I like this word lusts. Um, I think that's probably a more accurate representation of what this concept, you know, is trying to be um, conveyed to John, from John to us. It's the idea of lusts. Um, and I think there's all sorts of lusts in this world. There's all sorts of passions in this world that can affect even Christians, right? Um, I think, um, you know, there's, many of us have been members of churches where one you know member's passions have caused them to cheat on their wife or to cheat on their husband or one member's lusts has you know for i know about you know individuals their lust was to be an elder and when they didn't get the eldership they got mad and left the church and they went somewhere else and they're like i'm not going to be a member of that body anymore because they didn't want me to be their elder and it's like so this idea that it's your direction and your, you know, lusts and desires that are guiding and, you know, but we see these things, you know, all out in the world too, don't we? We see people doing these same things, not getting the positions that they want, doing this, that, and the other. 
so my what I'm pausing to you is that we have to put away those lusts. We have to put away those passions. We have to put away those desires because it's those passions, it's those lusts, and it's those desires that cause us to sin. It's those passions and those lusts and those desires that cause us to sin. And um, really, there's this almost this higher level, I think, this higher calling for the Christian than even one that exists um, in the world. I think it's one thing for um, someone in the world to overcome something like addiction, um, but they're still going to have these passions. The Christian can overcome addiction and they have to overcome these passions as well. And so not only is it not, so really what I'm telling you right now is that it's not enough for a Christian to not sin anymore, but the Christian also has to put away his passions. He has to put away his lust. He has to put away his desire because it's those things that are going to be put away at the end of the world. What is the thing in chapter 2 and verse 17 that says it's going to abide? It's those who do the will of God. So we're starting to I get flesh out this picture of um, what causes sin, what causes you know pain in the Christian, and we know that the Christian is no longer supposed to sin. He's no longer supposed to be ruled by his passions. He's supposed to be pure. He's supposed to be a child of God. But there's kind of this big gulf in the middle, right? Um, we know that these things are passing away, but it's oftentimes difficult for us as human beings. Um, to, to, you know, grasp this concept that what's more important is the thing at the end, is the thing at the, you know, the end of this race. So, um, I think one of the more um, graphic examples in the scripture of this relief that we're looking for, and this relief that we want to learn more about, is Noah. What does Noah's name mean? Noah's name means relief. So I think in many ways, this idea of relief kind of bridging this gap, as bridging this gap between sin and desire and between, you know, God and sinning no longer, we're looking for this relief. Now, what is the story of Noah? The story of Noah is that he is burdened by sin and evil and violence all around him. You know, this is very, very appropriate to us in our culture today. We are surrounded by sin and sickness and violence all around us. But we see Noah's reaction was one of trouble. He was troubled into his soul. He was burdened day and night with the evilness that they saw around him. So how did God give Noah relief? He gave Noah relief by wiping away all uncleanness, by wiping away all of the sin, all of the violence, and all of the evil that was in the world. And he did that rather violently, didn't he? He destroyed all those who were evil. He, he, he judged, God judged the evil and what came out on the other side of that, of that judgment. The only thing that come, came out on the other side of that judgment was the individual who did the will of God, who loved God, who loved God's will, and was a godly person. So... Um, You know, what does this then mean? How do we then apply this into what I'm talking about as relief in the Christian life? Well, I think in many ways, um, Noah's story prefigures baptism, doesn't it? We are sinful and we are evil. We are purified then through water. And the only thing that comes out on the other side is righteousness, is those who love the will of God. 
Um, and I think in many ways, um, not necessarily in many ways, but just, I think it's very clear that this story of Noah prefigures the final judgment, right? On this side of the judgment, we have sin and evil and pain and sickness and dying. On the other side of the judgment, we're only going to have life and peace and joy. So we're starting to see then that becoming a Christian is in and of itself a form of relief. Um, but yet, once again, the only way that we're going to get that final relief is when we are in heaven, when the final judgment has occurred. Um, and the key, the key parallel in all of these three things, in the final judgment, in Noah's judgment, in our personal judgment, our personal judgment being our baptism, and rising up with all of our right, unrighteousness put behind us, is just that. There's right unrighteousness on this side of the judgment, and there's only righteousness on this side of the judgment, and the relief that we find is in that judgment. And um, <clears throat> I think that it makes it almost even more difficult than why do we keep on sinning? I feel like at this point, you know, I'm just saying this over and over again, but we haven't answered my central question. Why does the Christian still struggle with sin? I, I'm, you know, I'm talking about all these ideals. You know, Noah, he still sinned after the final judgment. The Christian, after you know, his judgment in water, he comes up a new man, but he still struggles with sin. The only way that you're not going to struggle with sin anymore is the final judgment. So what do I do about this today? Well, um, you know, in this John passage, it's interesting. It says... You're, the way you find re- relief, the way that you find purification, the way you find sanctification is by sinning no longer. But what does Jesus do? Jesus takes away all of our sin. And I think this is interesting because um, it's lofty. It's high. It's more than, I think, some other theological structures you know, call for. Some people say Jesus covers for your sin. You know, God sees Jesus' righteousness. He doesn't see your unrighteousness. Um, there's kind of this idea that Jesus is bearing our sins, but, you know, you still kind of have to struggle with our sins. No, this scripture clearly indicates that Jesus takes away all of our sins. So every time we fall short of the glory of God, it's like Jesus is right there with us, ready to take away our sins, ready to take away our guilt, ready to take away our iniquity. I think this stands in stark contrast to the, the picture that we find in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, what would happen? You would sin, you would have to go up, you'd be unclean, you'd be impure, you would have no relationship with Jehovah, you would have to go up to Jerusalem, and when you're in Jerusalem, you'd have to go through these machinations. Every single time you sinned, you had, something had to die, you had to commit some kind of sacrifice, and then you'd walk away from Jerusalem, and the next day, if, if you did something bad, well, you know what? You're out of luck because you're out of this relationship with God. You're out of this relationship with Jehovah. And it's not until you go through all those machinations once again that you're going to be back in the good graces of God. And I think the Christian experience with God, with a father, is a lot different from this Old Testament experience that I've just described. Because did those, sin, those sacrifices and these machinations, it says God forgave them of their sins, but it doesn't say that God took their sins away and made them as though they would never happen. Well, Jesus then, I think, is the, next high, is the next level, the highest level, the best level. Because even when the Christian sins, 
Jesus Christ is right there to take away your sins. What does it say in uh, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9? It says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So really, this whole concept of the Christian who sins after sanctification, um, and it's really, this is, a, this is a concept that I struggled with for a long time, is how do we understand, how is it possible that one who has been sanctified, one who has been cleansed, how is it possible that we can still possibly, you know, sin? We've been, we're supposed to have been transformed, we're supposed to have been able to put all those old things behind us. You know, where's, this, where's the power to overcome? Well, the power is right there. It's in confession and it's in Jesus Christ. We no longer have to worry about being far away. We no longer have to worry about, you know, addiction and vice and these things and these passions ruling over us. Because all we simply have to do is lean on Jesus Christ and all we simply have to do is confess and all we have to simply do is ask him to forgive us. He's going to take our sins away. In fact, he's already taken all of our past sins away. And I think it's a great act of faith. Um, we have faith that baptism saves us. We have faith that he forgives us when we are baptized. So why would we struggle and not have faith that all we have to do is ask? All we have to do is say, Jesus, I've sinned. I've fallen short of your glory. I have done these things that were against and contrary to your will. Forgive me of my sins. And that's enough. Jesus and God say that's enough. And once you do that, you are now one who is pure. You have set your hope on Jesus Christ. You have set your hope on him that he is a fulfiller of promises. And you are no longer making a practice of sinning. You're no longer engaging in this lawlessness that you were formerly engaged in. But rather you are walking in Jesus Christ. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. We abide in God and therefore we no longer keep on sinning. And we no longer make a practice of sinning. We're no longer belonging to the devil. Um, that in verse 8. Um, we're, in verse 9, we've been born of God and we're no longer making a practice of sinning. We're putting all of those things behind us and we're finding relief in Jesus Christ. Now, the, the, this, there was a simple sentence that actually kind of spurred all of these thoughts that I wanted to share with you. Someone said to me, um, you know, Jesus, he, you know, never found relief from sinning by giving into sin. I think oftentimes we find ourselves, the sin, this temptation, this passion is too great for me. And I'm just going to give in just this once, get it out of my system, and, you know, put it behind me and keep on going. <laughs> That's how Jesus did it. When he was filled with temptation, when he had a passion, instead of giving in, he saw it through. And I think um, that specific aspect of Jesus is what gives us relief, is what allows him, it's what gives, gives him and gave him the power to take away our sin. Um, that's what gives him the power to take away our sin. And um, I think that also, in many ways, is inspiration for us, because we have not resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. Jesus quite literally, very literally, resisted sin until he shed his blood. Um, and even beyond that, because he came back from the dead and resisted sin even longer. And um, the reason why uh, this passage, I think, comes at the end of Hebrews chapter 11 is in Hebrews chapter 11, this is kind of, you know, this is the laundry list of all these individuals. And it also starts with all these people who did just that. They resisted sin until the shedding of blood. 
So really, that is the message for all of you, is that our relief is not going to come until our blood is shed, until we die. But we find relief in Jesus Christ because he bears our burdens, he takes away our sin. He takes away our sin, and we find that relief in him. Now, there's this one more thing I want to say about um, this finding of relief. It's, I think um, one of these interesting concepts in First uh, John, I know I say interesting concepts, and I think that there's are interesting concepts a lot, but they really are. In First John, what's always in parallel between Jesus Christ taking away all of our sins and with us sinning no longer? Um, I'm going to read to you a few verses. Um, I'm just going to, these are kind of smattered across the board, starting in First uh, John chapter 1, verse 7. It says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Chapter 2 and verse 10 reads, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. In chapter 3 and verse 14 it reads, We know that we have passed on from death into life because we love the brothers. And then um, picking up in 16 through 19, By this we know love, that he laid down his life, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in deed, or word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of truth and treasure and reassure our heart before him. And then chapter 4 and verse 7 it reads, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In chapter 5 and verse 2 it reads, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So I think there's a parallel structure that kind of becomes obvious the more and more you look at it between those individuals who have been purified, who are walking in light and who are sinning no longer, and between those who are looking for relief and loving and being in the love of the children and of God, really. So... Really, the point I'm trying to drive home with this is that we have assurance. We, have, we know that we have forgiveness. We know that we have grace. We know that we have relief because we love the children of God. We love our brothers and sisters. We love the community that God has built for us. And I think everyone in this room and who's, on this, um, who's listening in right now on the Internet, we have that in common, don't we? We all love each other. We all want to look out what's best for each other. We want to spend time with each other. We want to do God's will together. We want to worship together and sing together and study God's word together. I think there's this love and this unity that exists among us in this community, us in this body of Christ. And I think not only do we find relief from our sin and encouragement to sin no longer in this community, but we also find reassurance. Um, I think there's... That was one of the things I was struggling with, with this concept of how does the Christian keep on sinning after he has been sanctified? You know, I'm still struggling with sin, but according to this passage in First John, I shouldn't be sinning anymore. It should be almost impossible for me to sin. So how come, you know, I'm still struggling? How come I'm still battling against sin? Um, the, the thing that I found assurance in was thinking, even though I'm struggling with sin, 
I'm still finding love from my brothers. I'm still finding community in Christ. And because I know that Jesus and God's people love me, that is proof. That is assurance. That's something physical. That's something solid that shows me that I am still in God's love, that I still have my relationship with Jesus, that Jesus is still taking away all of my sins. He is still hearing me. He is still giving me relief. So really, that is the encouragement I have for you today. Um, as Christians, we need to be very mindful. We need to be very watchful um, for what sins we have in our lives. Like I said, we used to be liars and cheaters. We used to be addicted to, to substances. We used to steal. We, we, we used to be angry but now we are no longer new those things. But it's not just one day, you know, you go in the water and you come the next day and all that stuff is behind you. You're still, as a Christian, going to struggle with addiction and sin and lying and cheating and being angry and thieving and not speaking the truth and love. And then even as a Christian, you're going to have an even caller, higher calling. Um, it's not enough just to put those things behind you, but you have to, it's a sin for Christians to see the right thing to do and not do it. Um, I mean, Jesus says he sees the right thing to do and doing it not to him it is sin. So it's like not only is it enough to, for the Christian to put away the bad stuff, but now it's for Christians a sin to not put on good stuff. Um, but we know, and, we, and I think we all understood this at some concept or another, that we're going to find relief from this struggle at the end of time. Um, but I think oftentimes we forget that the farther and farther away we move from our former life, that the harder and harder and harder the burden's going to get. We're going to struggle harder against sin. It's going to be harder to put off the old things. It's going to be harder to take on the new good things. Um, but the encouragement to you today is that you're going to find relief in Jesus Christ. He takes away our sin. He bears our burden. He's there to help us. He is faithful to forgive us as we are faithful to confess to him. And beyond that and above that and more than that, um, here on earth, if we start to falter, if our feet start to get weak, if we're start to think, I can't do this, I can't handle this burden, I want to, you know, I, I just, I need this relief through, you know, release. Um, no, you don't. You need to look to your two brothers, you need to look to your sisters for help, because you know that as long as you're in the love of the brethren, as long as you're in, in the love of the body of Christ, as long as you're serving your fellow Christian, you know that you have relief from Jesus. You know that you're in the body of Christ and you know that God loves you. So that's my encouragement to you today. Um, I guess William will now lead us in a couple more songs and then we'll have announcements.